In most Christian circles, uh, legalism is a four-letter word. It's, it's something you don't want to be accused of. What is legalism? For, for some, any talk of having lives changed by Jesus, that following Jesus has real practical implication, is called legalism. Uh, but that's generally not what it is. Today we're going to be seeing an instance of legalism. The kind of legalism addressed in Galatians 2 is teaching or behaviour that says to come to God, to be acceptable to God, you've got to do something. It's saying there are certain behaviours, actions, activities, and by doing them, now you line up with God's expectations. Legalism says uh, if you perform certain rituals or obey certain rules, and if you do them thoroughly and completely, then you're going to get God on your side. Then God will love you and accept you. Uh, Many of our relationships with people depend on what we do, don't they? If we keep our side of the bargain, then they will love us, then they will accept us, then they will be our friends. And so because that's our natural experience, we expect God to be the same, except only bigger and more stringent. But we're going to see today that this way of approaching God robs him of his glory. It makes a mockery of the cross. So we're picking things up, uh, we're picking the story up where we left things two weeks ago. Uh, In Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul is recounting part of his story. His story about how he became an apostle, a messenger of Jesus. He's reminding believers in Galatia, uh, which is in modern day Turkey. He's reminding them and defending the message of freedom and forgiveness in Jesus they'd originally received from him. As Paul tells his story, we see the fight against legalism has been going on and on. Earlier in chapter 2, so before where we read from this morning, we heard about a visit to Jerusalem. Paul took a Gentile believer, a non-Jewish believer named Titus, and when they got to Jerusalem, there were some Jewish believers who tried to force him to get circumcised. They said, Titus, your faith in Jesus is not good enough. If you want to be really right with God, if you want to be part of our fellowship, you've got to line up with our rules. You've got to get circumcised. But Paul and Titus would not bow to the pressure. The same thing can't be said about a later incident with the Apostle Peter, the the one we're reading today. Sometime, uh, sorry, that's the Bible verse that talks about Titus earlier in Galatians, so I should have put that up. Sometime after Paul and Titus visited Jerusalem, Peter finds himself in Antioch. And things start off great. Here's Peter. He's a a leading apostle. He spent three years of his life with Jesus. He's visiting this significant church, uh, the church that sent Paul and Barnabas on their mission to Galatia, a church that is made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. It's a multi-ethnic church. But some false teachers... Probably the same blokes who tried to force circumcision on Titus. They come down to Antioch and Peter buckles under their pressure. So read with me from verse 11. So Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. 
When Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, it's just his Jewish name, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When we're looking at the earlier chapters of Galatians, are we, we spent a bit of time just seeing how it fits with the record we have in Acts. This particular event, Paul's, uh, Peter's visit to Antioch, it's not recorded in Acts. I reckon it probably fits right at the start of Acts chapter 15. That's where it fits in. Do you get what's going on? What's happened? This circumcision group has come down to Antioch. This church where Jew and Gentile lived together as God's people, lived together in the freedom and forgiveness of Jesus, this church was revolutionary. In fact, the word Christian was invented in Antioch. The others in Antioch, the non-Christians, whether they were Jewish or pagan, they had no idea how to think about this, this new group that had, had come together when the gospel came to Antioch. They needed this new word to describe this group that was brought together not by ethnicity. It wasn't just Jews, but it was Jews and Gentiles together as a family, as a people of God, together following Jesus. They said, we don't have a word for this. They had to make up a word so they used the word Christian. And into this context, where there'd been this multi-ethnic church, comes a bunch of Jewish believers. They came from the Jerusalem church. That's what the mention of James means. James is the brother of Jesus, who by this time has become a leader of the Jerusalem church. So they come down from Jerusalem and they think, hey, it's our job to correct Paul's teaching and get this church in Antioch back in line. Their message, though, isn't the gospel. It's legalism. Their message is, to be a Christian, a real Christian, not like this kind of Christian you got here in Antioch, to be a real Christian, to follow Jesus, to be right with God, you've got to stop being a Gentile and become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised and live by the law of Moses. Every single law strictly. Only eat food, the law says you eat. No more bacon, no more prawns. You've got to celebrate the festivals, Sabbath. Passover, Jubilee, and on and on. No shaving your sideburns. I assume even offering sacrifices and on and on. All the laws from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've got to follow them all. You've got to become Jewish. And so these people come. Uh, Before they came, when Peter first arrived in Antioch, he got right in with how this church lived. Peter was happily living side by side with Gentiles. Now, before he became a follower of, well, before um, he, the Spirit told him to, he behaved like most normal Jews and he wouldn't eat with Gentiles because they were considered unclean. You go and hang out with a Gentile, you've got to, you've actually got to ask God for forgiveness for that. But here he comes to Antioch. And he comes having understood that God accepts anyone who trusts in Jesus. And like the rest of the Christians in Antioch, Peter was happy to join with the Gentile Christians as 
Gentiles. Eating with them, having bacon and prawns on the table, eating with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then this circumcision group comes down and Peter bows to the pressure. He stops having anything to do with Gentiles. Paul sees this and he is livid. And he marches up to Peter and publicly tells him off. Verse 14, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, I don't reckon Peter's been telling Gentiles to do anything. He hasn't been explicitly saying, hey, to be a Christian, you've got to first start following the Jewish law. I don't think he's been teaching this, but by his actions, by the way he lived, by pushing Gentile believers away. Can you imagine how it felt? Uh, This group from Jerusalem comes to Antioch. And you're a Gentile Christian and you invite Peter over for a meal. Previously, he would have jumped at it because you actually know how to cook bacon well. And But now he's got, he makes an excuse, oh, sorry, I've got to wash my cat. But then you're walking down the street and you see he's actually gone to someone else's place for a meal, a Jewish person, and there's only Jewish people there. By doing this, he may as well be shouting out with a big megaphone, you Gentiles are not good enough. I don't accept you, neither does Jesus. You need to shape up, live like a Jew, eat like a Jew, follow the law of Moses. Then, if you're lucky, you'll be good enough for me and good enough for Jesus. Do you get why Paul is furious? This goes against everything he's learnt about Jesus. It's undoing, denying, rejecting what God has done in Jesus. The gospel is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But Peter and the circumcision group are contradicting the gospel. Their message, their legalism isn't about Jesus and what he's done, it's about us and what we have to do. And so Paul calls Peter out. Peter is a hypocrite, he's out of step, he's out of line with the good news of Jesus. What he's doing is, at variance, it's it's incompatible with the gospel. And he goes on from verse 15 to show why this is the case. Uh, Verses 15 to 21, they're a bit tricky. It's a very tight argument, it's very precise in its language explaining why living by the law is incompatible with the gospel. All right, so Peter, so Paul has just confronted Peter. How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? But you still might be wondering, well, what's the big deal? Well, the law of Moses came from God. So why does it matter if you make Gentiles live according to God's law? In verse 15 to 21, Paul gives four reasons why living by the law, forcing people to obey and follow the law of Moses, those rules we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, four reasons why living by the law is incompatible with faith in Christ. I said before these are tricky sentences. Uh, I find that when we get to a tricky part of the Bible, particularly if it's tricky because the argument is quite tight and nuanced, 
you've got to keep remembering the big picture. And the big picture in this passage is about that story. Why is legalism, why is not eating with Gentiles, forcing them to live like Jews, why is that so wrong? And so as we go through the details, if you get stuck in some of the details... The question you've got to keep coming back to is, well, how does what this verse says, how does it back up and how does it answer the question that is raised by the story? And sometimes you're not going to actually quite work out exactly what it means, but you've got to work out with, well, whatever it means, it's got to help me understand the story because that's the logic of what's going on in this passage. So we've got these four points. Uh, the first point, it's, it's kind of a question. Uh, Paul asks Jewish believers to reflect on, well, hang on, why have you trusted in Jesus? The, the Jewish believers that have come down from Jerusalem, they've trusted in Jesus. Peter, you've trusted in Jesus. You've, you've recognized he's the Messiah and that he died on the cross. Why have you trusted in him? And the answer is they've trusted in Jesus because they've seen they could never get right with God through the law. They could never keep God's law perfectly. The only way they can get right with God, accepted by God, is through trusting in Jesus. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, we Jews, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. What does justified mean? I reckon a good way to think about it is, just as if I'd never sinned. Some of us, I think the way to think about it is, you're typing up a document on a computer, you can have text that is, justified, lined up so that it's straight, not with jagged, crooked edges. Being justified means we're straight with God, we're lined up with God. But the incredible thing in those two sentences, those two verses is, being justified by faith in Christ doesn't mean that our lives line up. That if you look at yourself and reflect on your own life, your own behaviour, your thoughts, your actions, that somehow you're now perfectly in line. Now it's through faith, through trusting in Jesus, God declares believers to be in line, just as if we'd never sinned. Now, how trusting in Jesus is able to justify it, that gets explained a bit more in some following verses. The point of verses 15 and 16 is, Jews who've believed in Jesus, and this includes Peter and those of the circumcision group, the reason they trusted in Jesus, put their faith and hope in him, is because they know they have not been able to keep the law of God perfectly. They haven't been able to be justified by keeping the law. The law is just, it's a straight line. But when they compare their lives to the law, they are all crooked. And so the point is, if Jews, if God's chosen people need Jesus to be justified, if the law couldn't do it, then Why make Gentiles think, hey, what you guys need is more law? It didn't work for the Jews. It's not going to work for the Gentiles. Why make Gentiles go down the same futile path? So that's the first bit of the argument. The law doesn't justify. 
only Jesus does. Uh, The second argument is, because Jesus died for Jew and Gentile, and since he died to bring both Jew and Gentile into the one people of God, since Jesus did this, well, it's not sinful for a Jew to eat with a Gentile. In fact, the sin, if anyone's sitting here, it's those who are going back to separation. Now, I reckon these verses are the trickiest of the arguments. So let's look closely at verses 17 and 18. What you've got to do is you've got to read it as if Paul is talking to Peter or talking to the circumcision group. So Paul's saying something like this. Hey, Peter, how you doing, mate? You remember Jesus? You know, that bloke, you know how he would eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you remember that vision God gave you when you were in Joppa, Acts chapter 10, that three times the sheet coming down and God saying, take and eat, all food is clean. And you remember how you spoke the gospel to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, and and the Holy Spirit came upon him and his family and they were baptised. And you remember how you stayed in his home, eating with him, enjoying Christian fellowship with him. Remember all of that? Well, none of that was sin, was it? None of that was sin because it all came from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't lead us to sin. He doesn't promote sin. In fact, listen up, Peter. In fact, the people who are promoting sin are those who are disobeying Jesus, going against the gospel and rebuilding the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. That's what Paul's saying. So have a listen to verse 17. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. As I said, I think these are the most complex verses, just to be really clear. Finding ourselves among the sinners means eating with Gentiles. Literally, finding ourselves eating with sinners. And when he says, rebuilding what I destroyed, it means rebuilding or re-establishing the law that kept Jew and Gentile apart. Paul's really sinking the boot on this one. The lawbreakers are not the Gentile Christians. They're not breaking God's law by eating pork or not being circumcised. They're not breaking God's law because they were never under the law. Jewish Christians, those who are enjoying full fellowship with Gentile believers, like Peter was when he first arrived in Antioch, they're also not lawbreakers because that's in line with the gospel. So if Peter wasn't breaking the law and Gentile Christians aren't breaking the law because they were never under the law, well, who are breaking the law? Well, there are two groups of people breaking the law. One is people like Peter. If Peter, if you really believe you shouldn't eat with Gentiles, well, then you were a lawbreaker when you were doing that. The other lawbreakers are those compelling Gentiles, forcing them to follow rules that were never made for them. All right, so that's the first two arguments. One, Jewish believers know the law doesn't work. They know they need Jesus. Uh, Two, Jesus isn't leading people to sin by having Jews associate with Gentiles. The third argument is where things all start coming together. 
a little while ago, we heard Paul say, it's only by trusting in Jesus that we can be justified, just as if I'd never sinned. But how does that work? How can trusting in someone somehow mean that I'm now right with God, even though actually I still do sin and I have sinned? And how does trusting in Jesus lead to justification? How does Jesus' righteousness end up with believers? And the answer is, it's because by faith we are united with Christ. Believers are in Christ, joined to Christ, one with him. We've already heard this, like in verse 17, in seeking to be justified in Christ. What's it mean to be in Christ? Uh, One way to think about being in Christ is, well, think about being in an aeroplane. If you get on a plane that's flying from Brisbane to Cairns and you get on the plane in Brisbane and as the plane takes off, if you're in the plane, then whatever happens to the plane happens to you. If the plane flies and lands in Cairns, then you will arrive with it. If the plane crashes and burns, same thing. The Bible says, when you trust in Jesus, you are united with him. By faith, we are in Christ. And this joining, this union means everything that's true of Jesus is true of believers. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. His death is our death. His life is our life. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith, believers are united to Christ. We are in him. His death is our death. His life is our life. His spirit is our spirit. Like the aeroplane, whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. His story is our story. Which means, believer, spiritually, you have died with Jesus on the cross. He died the death sinners deserve to die. When we're joined to Jesus by faith, his death is our death. And then Paul goes on to say that for Jews, for those given the law of Moses, being united to Jesus in his death means they've died to the law. The law of Moses no longer rules over Jews who belong to Jesus. Christ has fulfilled the law. And so back to the big point that he's making, because it's really easy to get stuck and lost and confused in the details. What's the big point he's making? If this is true for Jews, if they have died to the law in the Lord Jesus, well then why make Gentiles follow the law? By faith wrought union, his death is our death. But even better, his resurrection life is our life. And so his righteousness, his justification, his holiness is ours. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you are as justified before God. You are just as much 
just as if I'd never sinned before God as the Lord Jesus, as the beloved Son of God. Justification, sometimes the way Christians talk about justification sounds like a trick a trick of accounting. It's kind of like a lie God tells himself or some trick that a lawyer pulls where a guilty person all of a sudden gets let off by, by a corrupt judge in a court. No. no, because of union with Christ, this is real and deep. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of those who believe in him and are filled with his spirit. All right, so three arguments so far. Uh, number so far, so far uh, the law can't save. Only everyone needs Jesus. Jew, Gentile, like we all need Jesus. Two, trusting in Jesus and the freedom He brings doesn't lead to sin. And three, this is all true because by faith we are united to Christ, crucified with Christ. Christian Christ lives in you. The final uh, verse, verse twenty-one. It's probably the simplest of the argument. And if you got lost in all the other bits, listen up, verse 21, cling to verse 21. It is it's beautiful and powerful and simple. The cross is horrendous, isn't it? Jesus, the divine son, bearing sin, becoming sin for us. But if, if we could get right with God through the law, if, if being a good person was all you needed for eternal life then the cross is a cruel joke verse 21 I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law Christ died for nothing this really stings if if you force people to live under the law, telling them they need to do this or that to keep this religious practice or eat food or, or not eat with certain people to be acceptable to God, if you teach or live legalism, what you're actually saying is, Jesus, you died for nothing. Jesus, your crucifixion, your bearing of sin was a stupid waste of time. But the cross is anything but a waste. It is the glory of God because it's the only way we can be united to Christ and receive God's gift of righteousness, of of justification, of freedom and forgiveness. Now remember the context. Paul in these, these last few verses has really gone deep into the gospel. There is, this is a hard passage, and I still don't think I've completely got everything that's in there. I think this is a lifetime passage. Paul's gone really deep into the gospel and to what God has done in Jesus. And why has he done this? Well, because in Antioch, Peter was not in line with this. He didn't see it. He didn't see that by refusing to eat with Gentiles, by bowing down to the pressure of the circumcision group, he was communicating with his actions that faith in Jesus, that what Jesus did on the cross is not enough. He was making it as if Christ died for nothing. Do you hear how serious this is? And we need to hear the same serious warning. Our situation is different. I've never been to a church where there's a circumcision check. I don't hear Christians talk about food laws. But there are ways we make people think that they've got to do something. They've got to clean themselves up. They've got to get themselves in line before Jesus will accept them. We may not say it with our words, 
We do say it by the way we treat them. The threat, the allure of legalism remains. There are churches where if you own a TV, you cannot be a member of that church. You can't join a church. Sorry, that's the rules. No TV. Or maybe a bit more common is that implicit pressure. To join our church, to be part of our church family, you've got to dress a certain way. You've got to speak in a certain way. You've got to have a kind of refined way of speaking. In some churches, you've got to say holy in a certain way. Speak in old English where you don't even speak the same language as everyone else. Thy, thee, thou. You've got to vote a certain way. Raise or school your children in a certain way. Now, there's no problems, especially with those last few things, probably most of those things, to have a certain opinion on these things. They become legalism when you explicitly or implicitly force others into your mould, where the things that are your preferences or opinions become a law, a rule that make them feel unworthy of Jesus, unable to come to Jesus until they conform to your views. But the truth is we're all unworthy of Jesus, aren't we? But in his love, God sent Jesus. And without Jesus, we cannot be justified. It's not what we do that justifies. It is only and always through faith in Jesus. Jesus makes us his new people, people from all kinds of walks of life. The church here should just be like the church in Antioch, isn't it? A diverse group of people united because of Jesus. And therefore to exclude anyone whom Jesus has welcomed makes us the lawbreakers. By faith we are united to Christ, not by the things we do. And finally, If we make anything we do the standard of righteousness, then we're saying, Jesus, your death is a waste. How do we keep ourselves from destroying ourselves and destroying others by legalism? By looking to Christ, seeing and savouring what he's done for us. So let's do that now as we pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for who he is and what he's done for us. We confess there are times we think we're able to make ourselves acceptable to you, that we can be justified by what we do. Please rescue us from the false teaching and the allure of legalism. Protect us from making others feel or think they need anything other than faith in Christ for salvation. Make our church a place where all who are welcomed by Jesus are welcomed by us. And may we do this for Christ and his glory's sake. Amen.